From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Bob Posen is a senior lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's former president of Fidelity Investments and former executive chair of MFS Investment Management. He's written a book, which I commend to you. It's called Extreme Productivity, Boost Your Results, Reduce Your Hours, which describes his philosophy and offers some very practical tips for how you can do just that, boost results, reduce your hours. Bob has a really impressive uh, background and resume. He served on President Bush's Commission to Strengthen Social Security. He was Secretary of Economic Affairs for Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. In 2007, he was chair of the SEC's Committee to Improve Financial Reporting. He's done a lot. Had, has he done it? How did he get all this stuff done uh, in the time that he had and be committed to his family and his community? Well, get set to listen and learn some tried and true tips for how to manage your time and attention to accomplish more things that matter from Bob Posen. Bob, welcome to Work and Life. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you forgot my high school basketball career, though. All right, so... Just joking. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, Bassett High School in Bridgeport, Connecticut. All right, and so you were, like, I'm guessing a guard? Yeah, well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, all right, tell me, what is in your bag? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, what I carry around in my bag, uh, in my uh, canvas bag rather than a heavy yeah. uh, briefcase, is uh, uh, a number of things. One is my blindfold, which is really important, so uh, I can keep uh, my schedule of taking a short nap every day. Uh, and when I'm flying on planes, I can sort of feel like I'm getting into a cocoon mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really be able to work and sleep. And I carry some extra work wherever I go in case uh, you get caught with some real downtime. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things I carry in my bag. All right. So, so let's talk about naps because I'm a huge fan of naps. I try to get two 15-minute naps in each day. Tell me what's your napping strategy, Bob, before we get into perhaps more serious matters, although I really can't think of anything more important. But go ahead. Well, we have to put this in context. Uh, okay. Everyone has a body low sometime between 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a biological thing mm -hmm. where your body slows down, and what you need to do is to re-energize yourself. There are a variety of ways to do it. Some people like to exercise, which I strongly support. I, I think you should try to exercise in the middle of the afternoon and not early in the morning at night because you get much more bang for your buck on that. Mm -hmm. But other people like me and you 
take short naps, and the key is to keep them short yep. and to really train yourself to actually fall asleep. Yep. And um, for me, the key is to have a blindfold. If I have a blindfold, that's sort of like my behavior mod thing to... That signals... Uh, the, that the, I that I my body is going to go to sleep, mm-hmm. and I've sort of trained myself to keep it to about twenty five, mm-hmm. uh, thirty minutes at the most. Some people say to me they're afraid to take a nap because if they do, they might sleep sleep for two or three hours. Yeah, I I respond to them by saying there's a simple solution. It's called the alarm clock. alarm clock. Yes, <laughs> and uh, that will sort of get you trained into the right. It's not hard. Uh, right approach, and it does really invigorate you a lot. Oh, and totally. Sure you've had the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you, for the rest of the day, you're much more pers- productive instead mm-hmm. of. Uh, lagging it for you know a few hours so all right that's the key all right yes all right so everyone nap bring a nap into your schedule now if you're working in a place where you just can't make it happen just figure out i have napped in the weirdest places you can imagine i'm sure you have too bob you got to find a way to make it work and i think the the blindfold concept is a really good one yeah Um, no i agree you can sometimes if you're in a Workplace, just go off and find a little office somewhere around where no one is. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're in a hotel, even in a lobby, you can just find a little sheltered place, and you'd be surprised how you can do it if you if you work at it. All right, let's talk about some of the other things that you have uh, offered the world in your wonderful book about extreme productivity. We, we live in a world that is characterized truly by an endless stream of activity, of meetings, a backlog of emails, no end to the workday, no, no more clocking out at a certain hour. So when it comes to personal productivity in today's uh, incessantly demanding work environment, what are the key recommendations you have? What's the, what are the big ideas in extreme productivity? Well, there are three big ideas. The first is that you really need to sit down and really think hard and write them down what your top goals are and what prioritize them. I recommend that you think of it as your goals for uh, the next year and then bring them down to the week level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I say this is uh, because most people spend a large part of their day responding to other people's goals mm-hmm. when they're responding to emails or going to e- meetings and they come home at the end of the day and they say to their spouse, I work really hard, but I'm not sure what I really accomplished. What they mean is that they didn't accomplish any of their goals. And so uh, you really need to keep those goals in mind. And I have a few uh, sort of uh, mechanisms that you can use to do that. One is I advocate a two-sided schedule. Okay, what's that? that? Everybody has a schedule where they put down their meetings, their phone calls, their various lunch engagements, etc. But I want you to put down on the other side of the second column is I want you to put down what you hope to get out of that event. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a meeting... The question is, what do you hope to get out of it? Or if you have a conference call, what do you hope to get out of it? So that gives you a much better chance. It's surprising how few people really systematically prioritize their goals and then really focus on getting them accomplished. It's really not that more complicated than that, is it, Bob? Yeah, Just to simply identify your intention in any you know structured activity. It's, it doesn't yeah, take it, a lot to get not, there. It's not nuclear physics, but... Uh, I would say most people go through their day 
in which most of their activities are what I call passive because they're responding to other people's inquiries, other people's goals. Now, of course, you got to do that to some degree, but the question is how much. Mm. The second main big idea is you got to find ways to get rid of the small stuff. And uh, the small stuff is that stuff that overburdens everyone uh, to sort of make it very difficult for you to get through the day. So probably a good example is emails. So we all get too many emails and you know, you could spend most of your day just responding to your emails or looking at your emails. And there are a lot of people uh, who just walk around and every five minutes they're checking their emails. And that may be the main thing that they do most of the day. So I have a few rules about emails. The first is don't check your email every five or ten minutes. Try to Train yourself to check your email every hour or two. It's a batch process. I don't process believe that in most organizations you can wait eight hours or stuff, but mm-hmm. that's that's a reasonable time period. The second thing so is wait, when let, you me, look let me at, interject here. Yeah. So, so every hour or so, but for how long? Because you can spend a lot of time responding well, to emails. Well, well, here's okay. That's my second rule: is you can look at the subject matter in the sender and immediately discard sixty to eighty percent of your emails so you're not reading them you're just going through them and very Mm. quickly and you really got to get yourself to that discipline you can do this partly through filters and automatics but you got to be ready to realize that at least two-thirds of what you're being sent is really not very important to you or very useful and so you really got you have to get into that discipline and the third point which is related to the second is you know from you do get emails that are really important from time to time, such as those are from your boss or from your spouse or, for instance, from the IRS saying you haven't paid certain taxes. Uh, so I, those I are ones those. you really need to respond to. <laughs> and what you need to do Just kidding. is is to not put them in some holding pattern mm-hmm. because if you do or holding box, uh, at the end of the week, you'll wind up with two or 300 so-called important emails that you haven't answered. You need to answer them right then and there. Mm-hmm. And then the person on the other side, who by definition is important, feels good. And you don't have to worry about going back to it and going through the whole process. Mm-hmm. And that's my the last principle that's related. I call it Ohio only handle it once. Mm-hmm. If you're if you look at the email, it's important. You read it, you put it aside. Then you come back to it in a week. It will take you a half an hour to find it, and then you'll have to reorient yourself. And you wind up spending so much more time. If it's mm-hmm. really important, answer it right then and there. All right. So so trying to get rid of the small stuff, especially email. Um, and I want to come back later if we have time to other small stuff that you sure. can get rid of. But uh, the third big idea, I really third like. Big the third big idea one. is I call it start at the end. And in many ways, it's the most uh, innovative idea is that's for your large projects. The large projects are high priority projects. Let's let's take a, as an example, suppose your boss says, we want to start a new uh, facility somewhere in the world, uh, and uh, we're not sure which country it should be or where, what city it should be, and we want you to do this, and we're going to give you uh, two months to do this and report back to us. So what do most people do? Most people start off, and they start to do research, and they do more and more research, and then sometime about the seventh week, they think, 
well, I've now gathered all this research. I need to uh, synthesize it and try to come up with the right answer. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm guaranteeing you that if you do it that way, at the end you'll find that you've gathered a lot of information that you really don't need. And uh, at the same time, you haven't really gotten enough information on really the critical variables. So I'm <clears throat> suggesting a totally different approach. You do preliminary, you do research for two or three days, and then you force yourself to write tentative conclusions that are moving you as close as you can toward the final product. Mm-hmm. Now, they're only tentative, and you might have to say, well, we think it's this, but we've got to look at the, these key variables. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's so, good also because it allows you the freedom to uh, to put it down there without it being definitive. So you can always adjust. Correct. You don't have to be freaking yeah. out about, oh, no, I can't. I'm not ready yet. I'm not, I don't have enough information. Just draft it. Well, put something out there. Well, Stu, what's interesting is everybody I've ever done this with in business or mm-hmm. now that I'm teaching here at MIT and uh, academia, everybody says, I can't possibly do it. I don't know yeah. enough. After two days or three days, I won't know enough. And I said, no, no, you'll know a lot after two or three days. And you have to force yourself to organize it and focus it mm-hmm. and put down these tentative conclusions or at least critical factors because that does two things for you. One is... It provides guidance and focus for the rest of your research, and so you're not all over the place. Second of all, more fundamentally, it forces you to come to grips with the key analytic issues that underlie pretty much every large, big project. Most people, if they wait till the end, they don't get to these key issues until the very end, and Mm -hmm. then they realize they haven't thought through Mm -hmm. them enough, they haven't gathered data enough. So... There, there are always these underlying critical uh, issues, and that's what we need to get to quickly. Yes. Now, as you say, these are only tentative conclusions. And Which is in liberating. A two, in a right? two-month project, you, you should look every two weeks and uh-huh. go through another set of tentative conclusions and, you know, uh, maybe try out the tentative conclusions on your peers or your boss or something like that. But if you go through this process you know, uh, after two days and then after two weeks and after four weeks and after six weeks, by the time you get to the end of the two months, you'll have really grappled with the critical issues a lot. You'll have refined and focused your mm-hmm. data mm-hmm. Uh, uh, gathering, and you'll and you'll really do a nice job. And so, but you'll get there faster. That's for sure. You'll get there faster, and you'll be more effective. All right. So those are the the big ideas. Um, <clears throat> what is your prescription, Bob, for how we can be productive at work and achieve some kind of peace and harmony between work and the other parts of our lives, our family life, well, our community life, and our personal lives? Okay. Well, that's a very important question, a difficult question. I think the key to, uh, to, to starting to answer that question is to get away from the notion that what's critical is the number of hours you put in at work mm-hmm. and to move toward what's critical is what you get accomplished. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are so many, you know, obviously there are people like accountants and lawyers who bill on an hourly basis, so you can understand why they're hourly. But there are so many organizations in which hours is the metric by which people judge whether they're doing a good job, whether they're working hard, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have things like FaceTime, where people like to 
show their face to the boss at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. at night, and that shows that they're really working really hard. But we all know that when we're in knowledge-based industries, which is what most of us are now, is it doesn't matter how many hours you put in. It's what you get accomplished. You know, when I was president of Fidelity, if I had a young analyst who came in at 4 a.m. in the morning and left at, uh, you know, uh, 9 a.m. and did, had great pick stock picks. Why did I care that that person wasn't there during the regular working day mm-hmm. and uh, putting in 10 hours? And you know, journalists often say to me, "Gee, I'm not sure about that." And I said, "Well, as a journalist, haven't you ever spent three days on an article and it was really not very good? But some other articles, you dashed off in a few hours and it was really great." And I said, "Sure." I said, "Well, that's what I'm talking about. The question is." Sure what you're accomplishing. So mm-hmm. once you do that, well, how do you, you persuade your hours your... and you get off hours, mm-hmm. it makes your whole life much more flexible. That's yeah. the key. That's how it relates to work-life balance. So it's no most people to achieve work-life balance, it's not so much the total number of hours they put in, it's the flexibility yes. that they need and control. And that's and that's how you get to that. You've got to get mm-hmm your organization and your boss and your and your well but how do you do that toward that not everybody has a boss like you who understands that you got to be focused on results not on the amount of time it takes so if you're in an organization where FaceTime matters or at least historically it has what do you do well I think that you you've got to sit down and talk to your boss and perhaps talk with your HR organization and try to get toward a different system what I call performance-based metrics because it's very hard for an organization or a boss to go from hours to nothing. So if you say to a boss, well, okay, uh, you know, I don't want to be on this uh, 50-hour-a-week thing anymore. I want to do this. The boss say, well, how do I know that you're not just going right. to, you know, screw up? How do I know that you're really working? How do I know this? How can I trust you? Yeah. And so the answer is let's together agree on not only what the goals are we have over, let's mm-hmm. say, the next week or next month, but let's agree on success metrics. Yeah. So let, let's sort of agree that this is how we're going to decide in a month whether I've done a good job. You want me, for instance, to improve the service, the customer service of our organization. Well, people have lots of uh, different concepts of customer service. So what we're going to do is we're going to decide together what the success metrics are. And then if I can meet them, then you should be happy. If I don't, then I've got to take the the hit for it. But we're not going to say, how many hours did you put in? We're going to say, did you hit the success metrics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's focused not so much on how much time you're putting in, but whether or not you're hitting the, the goals that are mutually agreed on. The problem often is... Uh, isn't it, Bob, that the uh, the results are sometimes hard to assess, and so people rely instead on something they can observe, which is how many hours you're in the office. Well, you're right to say that hours are an easy uh, measurement. They're very visible. Yeah. They, they're very tangible. They're very easy to, to sort of rely on. But yes. they're very bad proxies mm-hmm. for what you accomplish. And so... You, you've really got to work hard to 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 with to set up these success metrics, but mm-hmm. if you do it, it's really worthwhile. Sure. 
and your organization will see it because then you're all sort of the, the very process of having a team. So I've led a number of teams. Let's say I was a middle manager, led a team, and the very process of setting up these uh, success metrics and agreeing on them clarified for the whole team what we were really trying to do and why of course. what we what, what the developed a consensus on mm-hmm. it and it really motivated the team a lot more so and is... then of course i as the team leader didn't have to bug them every mm-hmm. day because i knew at the end of the month i was going to be able to sit down and we were going to see whether these mm-hmm. metrics were done and there are lots of metrics that are quantitative but people say to me, oh, there are various things that you can't tell, like customer satisfaction. Well, you can have surveys. You can have various... Uh, You've got to agree on the metrics that are, that are relevant and that, that makes sense for the business as well as for the team itself. Right. And, and I think your, and, your and, advice and, here is, is especially useful in terms of the ownership of the, of the metrics being shared uh, and mutually understood. Yeah, you're very right about that because, you know, if the boss just says, well, this is what we're going to do, you know, then a lot of the teams say, well, okay, we'll go along with it. But they really haven't bought in. But if the boss says, this is what I think we need as the objective, and I would like to have a discussion with you Mm -hmm. about what we will agree on as success metrics, Mm -hmm. then that discussion brings ownership. Then people feel like, okay, this isn't just some boss out of nowhere telling us to do stuff. This is something that I've had some participation in and and, and I think is reasonable. Yeah, and uh, there are many opportunities to, to make something like that happen. Now, there are jobs where you can't do that. Like, how do you, you know, there are some folks listening right now who are driving a truck uh, or delivering the mail. <laughs> you know, how do you how do you uh, help folks who are on, you know, think, think creatively about uh, productivity improvements. Well, and I don't know. You know, I'm not an results. expert on delivering the mail or driving trucks, but I'm just let's just think about this for a second. Yeah, delivering the mail. So they're giving you a bag full of mail, and the question is, are they saying you have to be out and delivering for eight hours, or are they saying you need to deliver this bag of mail and without complaints from customers that you mm-hmm. threw it away or something like that? So if you do the second. Then you're saying to these people, we're going to give you an incentive to try to do this efficiently and well, and um, we're not going to say we're not going to make you have a time clock. We're going to what we're interested in is a: did you deliver all the pieces in your bag? And b: did we get complaints? So if you deliver them all, we're not getting complaints. Mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. that's a good sign. Yep, yeah. uh, I think that's going to be more and more an issue as so many more people are involved in delivery systems for Amazon and, and other online organizations. I wanted to ask you how you personally maintain uh, a kind of harmony between your professional and your personal life. What's your well, What's your one of the things approach? that I'm proudest of is you know when I was president of Fidelity, we went from. Uh, 500 billion to a trillion in assets under management. And, uh, you know, it was a global organization. It was complicated. But I got home every night that I was in the in in Boston, and that was most nights, by 7 p.m. to have dinner with my wife and my children. And, uh, yes, I'll admit that at 10 o'clock I often uh, went to my home office and mm-hmm. actually dealt with people throughout the world, et cetera. But 
it was that was my rule that I had to get mm-hmm. home at 7 p.m. no matter what happened, and that allowed me to feel much better about my work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, Stu, I was an official of the SEC way back when in the 70s, and uh, I remember at that time mortgage-backed securities had just begun, and the Fed wanted to have a intergovernmental agency uh, task force to uh, focus on this and develop policies. And uh, I was at the SEC, and they wanted me to head it. And I said, gee, it's an honor. I'd love to do it. And then they said, and, the, and this is going to meet from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And they said, why? And I said, because I can go for dinner at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do you need to do this from 7 to 9? And they mm-hmm. said, well, people are so busy they yeah. could possibly do this and do their normal work. And I said, well, I don't think that's true. Why don't we just try it for a few weeks and see? Excellent. And of course. We did it from 5 to, you know, from, I uh-huh. forget, 5 to 6.30, and of course, it worked perfectly well. Um, what's your approach to how to keep wasteful meetings out of your life? Well, I I think the first thing is to try not to automatically accept every meeting you're invited to, and really think hard about whether you really need to attend that meeting, and... Uh, I, I think you'd find that a lot of meetings aren't really necessary. The mm-hmm. second thing is I have a cardinal rule that says no meeting should take more than 90 minutes and mm-hmm. preferably less. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of study that goes on to say, you know, the longer a meeting goes, the less you pay attention. But you get beyond 90 minutes and you're really in sort of uh, really the fall off is so huge that it's really not worth it. So. If somebody invites you to a three-hour meeting, you could say something like, yes, I'm glad to attend, but I have something very urgent at the end of 90 minutes that mm-hmm. I've got to go to, so mm-hmm. I'm only going to be going to that. Mm-hmm. Then, well, I think... Before we proceed are, on that, let me just things let me about, jump in here and ask you a question about sure. the first thing you said, which was you, know, you don't have to take all the meetings that you're invited to. Um, and so, listeners, do you find yourself sitting in a lot of meetings uh, or invited to meetings that you don't want to attend. Bob, when I first got to Ford Motor Company, where I was a senior executive for a few years, I took leave from Morton to do that about uh, almost 20 years ago now. I'll never forget somebody who was higher ranking than me in the organization um, contacted my office and just scheduled a meeting with me. And I looked at that. This was like my first or second day on the job. I looked at that and my assistant, I said, like, what is that? He said, oh, well, you know, he's a VP, so he could schedule your time. I said, no, no, that's not how it works. And she was shocked because my attitude was, well, let me find out what this is about first. Uh, and do I need to you know, take this hour? That was counter-normative. So there's a lot of people who work in organizations where if somebody senior to you schedules a meeting, might not be your boss, just somebody who's got a higher level title, you got to go. How, what do you recommend people do in that instance? Well, I think... Uh that you first got to tell your assistant or whoever it is not to schedule any meetings without your consent. Mm-hmm. And then you, you've got to discriminate and distinguish between meetings that are really important and ones that aren't. And you've got to do it nicely and politely. Uh, so you can turn down meetings if you say you're busy with other projects or right. uh, these sorts of things. 
the other thing that's really important for any organization is that you you should try to stop the practice of people just inviting you to a meeting without a statement of what the meeting, the purpose of the meeting, and what the agenda is. So one thing you could do is say, uh, you know, I, I'd like to go to that meeting. Could you send me the agenda for the meeting? Mm-hmm. And then you could start to see whether this meeting is one in which uh, it's important or not. There are so many meetings in which people don't send out agendas in advance, and they don't send out materials in advance. And so what happens is you get to the meeting, and the leader of the meeting spends literally often an hour going through what the meeting is supposed to be about, <sighs> reviewing all the materials. Yes. And you're just sitting there, what and it's so frustrating. Yes. So if so, you're a boss listening, uh, you want to take this advice do not schedule meetings without letting people know in advance what it's about so that they can prepare and they perhaps choose whether or not they need to be there. Do you agree, Bob? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And if you're a leader of the meeting, you also need to be careful about not just inviting everyone that's mm-hmm. there, uh, but really keeping the meeting down to a number for decision-making that's really appropriate. Uh, there's a lot of work that's been done on this, and there's some disagreement, but Probably the optimal number for people in a meeting is six to eight people. Once you start getting to very large meetings, which happens all the time, people engage in social loafing, meaning that mm-hmm. they let somebody else take the, the the oar in running the meeting and in participating, and some really bad things happen. So you want to keep the number of people at the meeting to a reasonable level, and you want to uh, also uh, make sure that uh, the meeting is scheduled to only run for an hour and a half at the most. And, you know, uh, then, you know, the other thing that I think is very important for productive meetings is how meetings close. A lot of meetings close in a very ambiguous way. No one really quite knows what was decided, what wasn't decided. Uh, And people are really uncertain. So I think it's really important to have good closure Absolutely. where someone will summarize mm-hmm. what we've decided mm-hmm. and and second of all, say, what are the next steps? Action steps. Who's going to be responsible By when. and what are the time targets mm-hmm. for this? Mm-hmm. Again, these are simple rules, but they really are violated all the time. It's true. And they make a huge difference in terms of sucking people's time uh, in, in a wasteful way. So... A lot of our listeners uh, are feeling overwhelmed with their work demands. Um, so if someone is experiencing that right now, where should they begin, Bob? Well, I think they need to start with themselves, and they need to start and think about what what's their real, you know, uh, um, priorities here mm-hmm. in terms of their work and their life and and sort of take a realistic view of their talents and you know what are their alternatives so i i it's both a combination of being very clear about what they would like and what the priorities and then take a realistic inventory about their talents and the opportunities that are available to them once they do that that sets the context then they, they can get really specific about, well, what are the things that really bother them the most and are really the things that put them the most out of control? 
emails we've talked about. There's techniques you can do that. Meetings uh, we've talked about, there are techniques to come control on that. And some of the people will say, and I'm sure uh, some of our callers will say, well, it's my boss that's the problem because right. my boss is just the sort of person who just demands that I work. Mm-hmm. I'm there from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. and I'm doing a project and mm-hmm. he interrupts me with another one, etc. Yeah. So I think ultimately you gotta you got to have a conversation with your boss. You've got to be willing to have that conversation, but you've got to do it in a constructive way, and you've got to present alternative approaches. And that's what we were starting to talk about mm-hmm. with – Let's let's agree on what we're going to get done this week, what you want me to get done mm-hmm, this week, mm-hmm. and what our success metrics are going to be. And let's see if we can't really make sure that we get that done, but I get a little more flexibility, and I don't have you come into my office every day mm-hmm. bothering me. So <laughs> that that's sort of the way you got to start. Yeah, I think that uh, that shared understanding is, is so key. The um the difficulty is that many people are afraid to do that because they think you know, that they're you know, going to be you're, seen you're as right uh, about that, but I say to them, lazy. do you realize that your boss is also has a boss and your boss knows what it means to be mm-hmm. ordered around by a boss? I mean, it's not like these bosses come out of nowhere. Or that they yeah. have so much control and autonomy themselves. Yeah, and so we're all wrestling with the same question. Yeah, and so it may be the case that your boss is being sort of a robotic sort of mm-hmm. boss with you because what he's being asked to do is very unreasonable or is very inflexible. So you need to understand that. But I think if you say to people, "Don't be afraid to talk to your boss," your boss has been in your position. Probably still is. Your boss is in that position now, in some sense. Yeah. So, so it's not like this is coming. You know, you might we're going to now talk about outer space. We're not. We're talking about something that your boss very much understands. And, and he or she might uh, might be helped by by the approach that you take. Adam is calling from California. Adam, welcome to Work and Life. Hey, good evening, Stu and Bob. Hey. So hey, what's on your evening. mind, Bob? Uh, Adam, sorry. Hey guys. So my question is, um, what makes an effective meeting chair? Uh, as far as someone who can run meetings efficiently, effectively, keep them on track, prevent them from getting hijacked from somebody else, mm-hmm. what sort of fault? Okay, well, I, I think that's, that's a really good question. And the first thing the meeting chair is to make sure in advance, as we said, that the agenda and the materials are sent out in advance and that everyone knows that uh, they're expected to be read in advance. So we're not going to spend... 40 minutes going over the materials. Okay, then the second thing is the leader has to start the meeting by spending five or 10 minutes to tee up the issues. This is what we're about. This is the background. This is why this is important. And this is what we are hoping to accomplish in this meeting. We want to see if we can get decided A, B, and C, and and really focus that. Mm -hmm. Third thing is once the leader has finished that, the leader really needs to promote discussion and debate. A lot of, uh, you know, sort of leaders sort of create an atmosphere where people are essentially afraid to talk, and right. the leader basically says, we have to decide A, B, and C, and here's what the answers are, so does anyone want to disagree with me? Mm-hmm. So that's not very good. You really have to sort of say, well, here are the questions, and you can say, well, here are 
some ideas that I have, but I want you to know they're very preliminary, and I would encourage you to to come up with other ones and discuss it. Another, so, but Adam another asked thing, about. Let me just jump in here, yeah. if I can, Bob. Adam asked about people derailing the meeting or hijacking it. I think is the right. term he used. Okay, How, what do you recommend it, uh, for that situation? Okay, in that situation, I would recommend that you say to the person, "Look, uh, if the if they're going off target, you say, look, that's a very interesting point, but it's not central to what we want to get accomplished to, today. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's take that offline." And I'll I'll see you after the meeting, and mm-hmm. we can discuss that. So you respect the fact that there's an issue there, but you don't let it uh, change the direction away from the goal of the meeting. Yeah. And the other possibility is the person starts to go on and on and on, and you could say, look, uh, we want to make sure that you're, what you're saying is really interesting, but we want to make sure that we get a chance to hear from some other people. And so, uh, let, you know, see if you can finish up in a mm-hmm. minute or so. Adam, thank you so much for calling Work in Life. Really appreciate it. So, Bob, let me uh, ask, um, what's, what's the most difficult challenge that you th- see people facing when it comes to becoming more productive? Where's the biggest obstacle that people face? Well, I, I think we've touched upon one of them, which is a lot of people are afraid to talk to their boss. And mm-hmm. so uh, if they feel that their boss is forcing them to, into an inflexible situation with lots of hours and without a performance orientation, that's that's something that needs to be changed. The second thing is that people, there are a lot of people who are procrastinators in a variety of ways, and they're sort of afraid to sort of get down to getting what they, what they know needs to be accomplished. And my suggestions to them is that they try to break the what they view as sort of overwhelming or large uh, task into smaller blocks mm-hmm. and then start to uh, get those smaller blocks accomplished and feel good about that mm-hmm. and that will that will get you going rather than just seeing this huge thing in front of you right. and so i think i think those are two two of the two of the most important things and it's so crucial you know, to, we, to break that that big journey down into one step at a time and the step that's right in front of you so you can take it build some momentum some confidence and and start to see progress right but you were you were going to say more about the importance of building that momentum gaining that confidence yeah no i i think that um a lot a lot of people have the problem of getting started and you see that for instance when people want to have to write something you know a memo or something like that and a lot of it some of it is that they they just are overwhelmed by this and some of it is that um you know they're 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 afraid to write a a sort of rough draft because they think Mm -hmm. it, it has to be perfect and to me the key thing to do in those situations is to write a short outline. The outline helps you think through your points and starts to make the whole picture uh, sort of look, uh, come together in a way that's intelligible to you. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an amorphous blob. And uh, I mean, I do a lot of writing these days and I just, it's hard for me to think of how you could write well 
and get stuff done uh, from a writing point of view unless you do outlines. Uh, they're really the key to making that work. Well, it's, it's the same principle, isn't it, uh, of one of your big ideas, and that is to focus on the final product as soon as you can so that you can really refine your thinking about the things that matter most to you and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, that's a very good connection you've made, and I very much uh, applaud that. Yeah, so, well, it's 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 very. I've clear. learned something from you. That's important. <laughs> that's a that's an important connection I hadn't thought about, but oh, wow. you're absolutely right. Outlines well, are a, a form of start at the end. Exactly, like exactly. Now you've written also about boring is productive, establishing routines. Some people have a hard time with that, Bob. How do you help people who just are all over the map, can't keep a daily routine? It's it's obviously very productive and helpful if you can develop you know efficient daily habits. How do you help people to grow those and maintain them? Well, again, you first got to start by realizing that there are some things that are not very important to everyone. For me, I always say I don't really care what I have for breakfast. So I don't want to get up really? in the morning and think, think am I going to have eggs or am I going to have cereal or uh-huh. am I going to have pancakes? To me... I, it's just not that important. So what I want to do is basically have the same breakfast oh, every day, and that's gotcha. what I do. Okay. I have Cheerios, skim milk, and a banana. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the uh, similar to my routine. <laughs> I add so, I add blueberries and almond milk, not skim well, milk. But please good. continue. That's good. <laughs> but I mean, the idea is don't don't spend a lot of time and energy mm-hmm. thinking about issues that really aren't important to you, mm-hmm. and get them routinized. So uh, I think once you, you, you gotta, you got to start by saying, what are the issues that are not important to me, and mm-hmm. that's, and are important to my organization, and get those routinized. Say another example of that is, in a lot of organizations, people have to file monthly uh, reports, status reports, in fact, in many organizations, no one reads any of this. But people think, well, I've got to do this, got to you know, be careful, write it, be comprehensive, et cetera. And in fact, it's not important to the organization at all. Hmm. It's just something some bureaucrat decided to do at some point. So the key to getting yourself to do this is to realize that certain things aren't important to you and certain things aren't important to your boss and certain things aren't important to, aren't important to the organization. So those things, you ought to try to minimize the amount yes. of time, energy, and uh, thinking that goes into those. So, so the, uh, you want efficient, useful daily routines, but you want to kill the mindless routines. Yeah. You want, you want, to, you want, to, well, you want to make sure that you're not spending a lot of time on things that aren't really important and mm-hmm. that's if that's what we mean by mindless you want to create in a sense create some mindless routines like eating the same breakfast because you don't want to be thinking about it you want to think about something else mm. we just have another minute or so uh bob so i'm wondering if you could uh if, if there's one thing that you could offer our listeners about uh, what you think is really the most important thing to think about and to take away uh, as they explore extreme productivity as, as you would have them, what would that be? I think we, perhaps the, the most important thing is that what's, what's critical is flexibility. For, for most people who are juggling uh, 
a variety of professional and personal obligations. The key is for their organizations and for their uh, support groups to be flexible, to give them the flexibility that they need mm-hmm. to get what everybody wants done, mm-hmm. but to do it in in a in a way and in a time framework uh, that's not uh, a sort of rigid framework, because it's really hard to do all this stuff if it's a rigid framework. Mm-hmm. But if you can get the flexibility of saying, okay, it, you don't have to be there from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can you can do the hours that make sense to you mm-hmm. and that will work for you. That's that's really the critical thing. I remember I had kids who played uh, sports and I used to leave at 3:30 mm-hmm. uh, and go to their on Wednesdays and go to their sports game. And mm-hmm. people were like amazed and they came up to me and they said, "You mean I can go to my daughter's?" Uh, uh, a ballet uh, performance, even though it's at 9 a.m., uh, you know, on Thursday morning. And I said, sure. And they said, I'm going to do my work. I really will. And I said, of mm-hmm. course you're going to do your work. Mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to do it at 9 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. And that flexibility is the key to making Absolutely. the difference between a very terrible sense of being overwhelmed and no way to get out and an ability to sort of gain control and manage effectively your competing obligations. Well, I, I hope that uh, some of the folks listening who have authority in their organizations as leaders, uh, running divisions, small businesses, what have you, are, are really taking to heart this, this idea and that they try small experiments that allow them to, get, to express that trust that you gave to your people and to give them the flexibility, maybe even just on a trial basis, to see how powerful an idea that is. Bob, I really appreciate your, your sharing that and, and all your wisdom here. How can people find out more about your work? Well, the easiest thing is to uh, is to read my book, uh, which is uh, uh, easily accessible on Amazon, and you can get it in a variety of different forms. I also have a website, bobposen.com, in which I include uh, uh, not only the book, that book, but lots of other things that I've written, and I do write a lot of stuff, so uh, they can... They can pick it up in either place. Fantastic. Bob, thanks so much for joining us on Work and Life. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bob Posen. And now I want to offer you an invitation, a challenge, to follow up on one of the things that Bob and I just talked about. And that is about saying no to meetings that are requested by people, could be at work, probably at work, or maybe in some other part of your life. There are probably some invitations that you get that you think are just a waste of time. They're not going to serve you well or the other people that are inviting you, but they're just doing it out of habit or for some other reason that's not, well, it's just not making sense to you. So here is the challenge, the invitation. Try, over the next week or so, to say no to a meeting request, which of course is going to free up your time and attention for the things that matter more to you. Try doing that in a way that makes the person making the invitation to you feel good, not bad. 
feel okay, at least, and not rejected. Because you explain to them why it's in their interests, as well as yours, for you to not attend. Do you think that is possible? I think it probably is, if you give it some thought. If you've got a good reason for not attending, is there a way for you to convey it in in, in a fashion that, that won't offend, but that will actually strengthen the respect that the person asking you to meet with you has for you? This is a stretch. This might not be easy, and maybe you think it's just not a good idea at all, but I'd like you to give it some consideration in the way that Bob Posen was just speaking about and give it a try. And if you do, of course, I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or you can contact me directly on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. Another thing I'd like to ask is that if you have ideas about people who you think should be on the show. In fact, Bob Posen was a recommendation from from a listener. So uh, if you want to recommend someone who you think would be fun and interesting for me to talk to, send it along. Again, it's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, TotalLeadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.